Navigating the Storm, Episode 7, The Right to be Heard. I'm Anna Knight. I'm a personal development coach and a seasoned survivor of life storms. You can find me online at annanightcoach.com or over in my Facebook community, Port in the Storm. On this podcast, I speak to women and non-binary people about their lives, their journeys to where they are now and the things that they think need to change in the world. While my guests might not necessarily be famous, although Brie Larson, if you are listening, please get in touch. The people that I speak to give me new ways to think about things and new inspiration to go out and make change in the world. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Susanna Petch, a GP with an interest in holistic care and trauma. We cover quite a lot of topics today, from what medical professionals need to stay afloat in these challenging times, an expanded definition of trauma, and how to get the help you need when you've got medically unexplained symptoms. Talking to Susanna, the thing that struck me throughout the whole conversation was the power of speaking your truth. All three of the topics had a lot of personal relevance for me, as a former NHS worker with trauma and many health conditions, but in all three cases, as Susanna explained so brilliantly, it's really unfortunately common to stay quiet, but the impacts can be huge. Hi, Susanna. Hello, hi. Thanks for joining me today. So if we kick off, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm a GP and mum. I've got two teenage daughters and live with my husband and my dog. I currently work as a GP in a local accident and emergency department, seeing frail elderly people mainly, but also seeing lots of children, adolescents, people with mental health issues and often gynaecological issues. So things that GPs on the whole tend to be better at managing. And I teach uh, medical school as well. So I teach medical students. Wow. So busy lady. Yeah. I like to do different things. (laughs) So how did you decide to become a doctor? Do you know, I actually, I really remember this really clearly. It was when I was five. I was really fascinated with how the body worked. And I really remember we always spent our summer holidays in Germany. My mother's Hungarian-German, so we used to go over and spend a number of weeks with my grandparents there. And I remember my grandfather had cut himself in the garden and just being fascinated about where the blood was coming from and what was happening and how it would heal. And for my birthday, that because my birthday's in August, so for that that summer, my for my birthday there, I got a little kind of first aid kit, kind of with a like a plastic toy doctor's nurses kind of kit. And I remember my mum asking me what I wanted to do when I was older, and I I said to be a nurse. And she suggested said, well, you know, have you thought about being a doctor? And I had a real stereotypical you know, if you're a girl, you have to be a nurse. If you're a boy, then you can grow up to be a doctor. And she said, well, no, you could be a doctor if you wanted to. And it was and it was just a really clear memory from that point. And that was it. 
Oh, I love that. Being dual trained as a speech therapist and a coach, the coaching stuff came much later. But I had kind of a similar moment, not quite as young. I think I was about 15 and we'd been getting all the, the careers talk at school. And I remember sitting bolt upright in bed and it must have been about two o'clock in the morning and just having that clarity of like, I'm going to be a speech therapist. Wow. And that had come from kind of personal family connections as well in that my dad had had speech therapy and had talked about the effect of it and what a difference uh. it had made to his life and yeah it was just that moment of going oh my god like this is it and I think yeah. it's so so interesting when you have that clarity from such a young age of this is what I'm going to be when I grow up and then the realities of that when you do grow up often don't match the picture that you've got in your head that is true yeah <laughs> So what's it like being a GP working in A&E? So it's, to be honest, it's quite a unique role. So usually GPs would work in the community in a surgery. And if they're attached to an A&E department, they're usually seeing what are termed kind of minor ailments. Where I live on the South Coast, we've got a very large elderly population. So much higher than the kind of national average so with that we have lots and lots of frail elderly people who actually are better off at home so that's kind of my role is to try and help manage them so they don't come in or if they do need to be admitted that we try and prevent them coming in in future so kind of giving that more holistic support but it's over the last few years it has been quite noticeable that there have been there's essentially lots of staff shortages and it's really noticeable in the area where I live and work. It's not classified really as an area of deprivation, which often goes hand in hand with staff shortages. I know that's a gross generalisation, but, but that often there is something in that. But over recent years, there's been a real shortage of doctors, of GPs in the community, shortage of nursing staff in the community and in the hospital. It's really obvious that there's also been changes to social care. So in the demographic that I'm working with, with frail elderly and we're seeing lots of people with mental health issues, it's really become apparent that over the last few years, there are changes to the provision that's available for those people. And that has had a very big impact on their ability to cope and to manage their situation. Yeah. And that's quite tough because you know what you could be offering and you know what could help, but it's just not quite available. Mm -hmm. And like you say, the impact on the patients that you see, on the communities that you're serving is quite a huge one when the demand is outstripping the supply. But I wonder, does that create extra pressure for the medics and the nurses who are in post? Yeah, so I think there certainly then is, there's a sense that a lot of the NHS is run on goodwill mm -hmm. because there are shortages and services are stretched. The staff that are there are stretched and are often covering their roles extend into other areas because there's a need, there's a patient demand, and there may not necessarily be the services there or the services, the, the other services themselves are also stretched. So there has been a sense for a while that people are more stretched. And then unfortunately, with how what we're living through at the moment, the current coronavirus pandemic, that obviously has stretched services even more. So yes, that's definitely had an impact on all staff. So nurses, doctors, paramedics, social workers, everyone really in the caring professions, I think. 
And on one of my previous episodes, I was talking to Jenna Marinell about burnout and she was coming at it from the, the corporate world burnout. But is that something that a lot of doctors, nurses, carers, like you say, anyone in a caring profession, is burnout quite common? In my opinion, yes, but it's something that's not talked about very much. So unfortunately, there's still quite a taboo within the health service as a healthcare professional yourself to say that you have burnout or to say that you are struggling, that you're not coping, to say that you have any kind of mental health issues. There's still this almost this sense that somehow doctors are superhuman, that we're not really a human being. It sounds like a bit of a silly thing to say, but I think there's a real perception both within the profession and of the public that we're almost never allowed to be fallible. We're not allowed to make mistakes. Obviously, the aim is that you don't make mistakes. Obviously, that's clear that patient safety is paramount. But we also need to understand that we are human beings with and each human being brings their own, I guess, backstory with them every day when they come to work and when they function. And each human being has their own tipping point. And when things are stretched, and that may be in work, it may be also in their personal lives, there needs to be a sense that sometimes that's too much and that maybe they need support. So unfortunately, there are really high levels. It's, it's well documented that there's high levels of mental distress and mental illness within healthcare professionals. There's a really horrendous statistic from the Office of National Statistics that between 2015 and 2018, 430 healthcare professionals died by suicide in this country. So that's in three years and that's official figures and that's before we had anything like living and working through COVID. So the emotional toll of working within the caring professions, that's something that's recognised within other professions such as counsellors, psychotherapists, social workers. They have things like supervision in place. Mm -hmm. So a subsection of medicine, so psychiatry, they also have supervision. So that's where you can talk through cases Usually it's every month with a line manager or with somebody um, who works within your field who's more senior to you. But within other areas of medicine, you don't have that. So if you take general practice, there's such a, a huge amount of general practice is mental health. And there's no consideration of anything like having supervision. So having that kind of ongoing support. And that's obviously that's going to take its toll on the staff. So I think the positive thing with the current pandemic people are talking about the impact of working through the pandemic and the emotional and psychological toll that's having on healthcare professionals in a way that hasn't been talked about really before. So I see that as a positive, but it's also to remember that this is not something that's new that's just happened due to coronavirus. This is something that has been predating that for, for decades. Yeah, I've been having that conversation quite a lot lately when you think about the figures that have come out about people experiencing domestic violence. Yeah. Lots of people have been saying, oh, there's a huge spike because of coronavirus. And it's that thing, isn't it, of we're in this pressure cooker scenario, which is bringing things to light. 
but a lot of these problems have been boiling away under the surface for years and years and years and it's now been spotlighted but I don't think that coronavirus has turned good men into abusive husbands in the same way that it hasn't all of a sudden created all these massive emotional tolls in doctors like Mm. we need to be having like you say the conversations about what we can do with this learning and moving forward I know you've been involved in a project called First to You. Could you tell us a bit about what that project is for, what you do? Yeah, so as a result of essentially what we were talking about, there's a group of eight of us, healthcare professionals and patient activists who want to see positive change in the way that healthcare professionals are viewed and treated within the NHS and also um, those working outside of the NHS. So essentially recognising what we've been talking about that burnout and mental distress as a result of working is very prevalent and that we need to have the conversation about self-care needs to be much 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 more commonplace than it currently is so the eight of us got together and we've put together a website called first you the website address is www.firstyou.org This is a collection of essentially well-being resources that we've put together in a way that's easy to navigate. And hopefully there's something there that can help different people in different circumstances. So there's some educational videos on how working in the current environment might impact you. There's tips on how to help somebody a colleague or a, a friend or a loved one who you think might be affected by working currently and also tips on mindfulness, on meditations that can help, and lots of also educational resources around nutrition and sleep hygiene. And then there's loads of things like free yoga classes, tips on how to manage money as a doctor. So there's a whole collection of different resources and the vast majority of them are free. And we're really conscious about making a website for resources for all healthcare professionals. So it's not just exclusively for doctors or exclusively for NHS workers. It's encompassing all healthcare workers. So including carers and paramedics and physiotherapists and social workers. We've had some really positive feedback so far. Yeah, Yeah. it sounds like such a worthwhile project. I remember when you launched it, just I had a flick through myself thinking, oh, wow, like so many of my former and current colleagues, I've been sending it to them being like, oh, you need to look at this. Because I think, I know back when I worked in the NHS, there was this idea that you didn't have time for self-care So I love that some of the stuff you've covered as well is quite quick and easy to put into practice because when you are in that feeling of going, oh, I don't have time to look after myself, something quick that you can add in as you're doing something else or 30 seconds of mindfulness, it can make quite a big difference. Yeah, and it's trying to highlight that point that self-care doesn't need to be something like going to the spa for a day that it actually can be like you say just something that takes a minute or two minutes that can be woven in throughout your working day and it's trying to provide the option of lots of different resources to hopefully appeal to people across the board and to just make it easy and that's why we've separated things out into different categories so it's hopefully easy to navigate so people can find something that's really quick and easy to use brilliant So moving on to another taboo subject that I know you probably have a lot to say on. We've talked in the past about your interest in trauma and your trauma-informed working. And 
a question that I'd like to start with is how do you define trauma? What does that mean to you? So I guess within medicine, people all automatically always think when you say the word trauma that it means physical trauma. So it's separating out physical trauma and emotional or psychological trauma. I see psychological trauma really as something, the causes of this are endless. And it's very much dependent on when something happened and what the circumstances are around that. A definition that I remember one of my teachers using that's really stuck with me is, is calling it a blow to the psyche. So it just feels like it's that, it's like a moral injury. So it's something that's injured the soul. So it really impacts somebody on a soul level, really changing their, often their worldview. But that doesn't mean that everybody who experiences trauma goes on to have negative consequences of it or to really have ongoing problems with it. So it's very much dependent on the circumstance of what's happened and the previous experience of that individual. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you found quite a lot of the people that I work with, when you say the word trauma, they can almost have a reaction of, oh, that's not me. And then when you put it in those terms, like you said it beautifully with the a blow to the psyche, a blow to the soul, I find a lot more people identify with that then. Yes, that's very true. It's one of the ways that psychological trauma, how it's, if it's something that's really significant, that's really impacting someone in a really deep way, in a really significant ongoing way, the way that the brain often copes with it is to minimise it. Because to have to really look at the gravity of the event or the series of events and how much that's impacted somebody is often too painful at that time. So to protect itself, the brain kind of shuts it off and minimises it. So it can take quite a long time for somebody to actually identify that they have been or are even in a situation which is traumatic. So I completely agree with you. I think using that word psychological trauma, the vast majority of people just don't identify with it themselves until kind of they've gone down that path of healing for quite a long way and then maybe that acceptance of what's happened is part of their healing process. Yeah I can really clearly remember sitting in a support group for women who'd experienced domestic violence and having that reaction of going this isn't for me I'm here I'm a fraud like everyone's gonna find out that I shouldn't be here and I think you're right that it is a protection mechanism that if I'd have started to unpick my past while it was still not my past it was my present Mm. I wouldn't have been able to look at that because if you look at it, oh my God, you've then got to do something with that information. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And it's, I think people, I mean, as, as you know, people need to feel safe before they can start to unpack it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, for many people, that feeling of to really, truly and deeply feel safe and held That may be something that people haven't experienced either ever, if it's something from childhood or or for a long time. So that that needed to create that feeling of safety that they really feel into themselves and can really trust that can take time. And that needs to happen before someone can really start to look at what happens and unpack that. Yeah, it's that. For me, it was the feeling of unconditional positive regard of nothing I say will be judged, nothing will shock you because you understand this 
that to me, having that moment of someone else understanding it was really huge in that process. Yeah. And kind of then bringing in your medic side of things. What do you think the effect of trauma can be on someone's health? To be honest, it could be anything. So for some people, they can be very minimally affected. So again, it goes back to that point of how big the impact is and and the circumstances around it. That makes such a big difference. So if I can give an example to illustrate this, I, Mm -hmm. I kind of give this example a lot in teaching. So if you imagine a little three or four year old boy who goes for a walk to the park with his dad and a massive dog comes running, bounding across the park towards him with his tongue lolling out and the big teeth there and drooling around and leaps up towards the boy. If you think then in size, a dog that size for a three or four year old boy looks massive, much bigger than it would to a grown up. And the boy starts crying and really, really scared. In the first instance, the dad sweeps the boy up into his arms, shouts at the dog and the owner, and turns away and reassures the boy, soothes him, calms him down, talks to him about the dog and how to be careful around dog, puts him down and distracts him and they go off and play at the swings. In that instance, the child feels security and safety and has his fears validated by his father. He's obviously not going to forget that image of the dog running towards him, but it's much less likely to have an impact, a lasting impact. If you imagine a different child, same scenario, walking with his dad, dog runs towards him, he starts crying, but the dad starts shouting at him and whacks him across the head for being such a pathetic child and crying just because a dog comes towards him. And the dad's really ashamed and embarrassed about his child's reaction and just shouts at him and walks off and the child has to run after him. It's clear by that reaction and that interaction that that child doesn't necessarily have that feeling of safety and security, doesn't have his feelings and emotions validated. And so it is potentially likely that that incident with the dog is going to cause much more of a, a lasting impression than in the first instance. So it's putting something into context and the duration and the sense of safety around it has a massive impact then on the body and what happens. So in the first instance, you can imagine there's that fight, flight, freeze response, that survival mechanism that the body goes into, that the little boy's body would have gone into when the dog was running towards him. But by the father picking him up and soothing him, that will have calmed down the boy's nervous system and showed his body that actually he's safe now. And then that fight, flight, freeze mechanism will have switched off everything settles down and kind of goes back to kind of an even keel. In the second scenario, again, that fight, flight, freeze response kicks off. But because the boy's being shouted at, not validated, not soothed, that mechanism may not necessarily get switched off appropriately. And that essentially is the issue with psychological trauma. So it's when that fight, flight, freeze response is not switched off properly and stays there, that underlying that stress response stays ongoing. It doesn't get switched off. And then that leads from acute stress. It then leads into chronic stress. And chronic stress, as we know, can lead to inflammation. And it's that inflammation that can lead to illness. 
And that can lead to any number of things. It can cause anything from having a higher incidence of cardiovascular illness, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, bowel problems, chronic pain. So the list could be quite endless, really. But it's just to be clear, it's not to say that everybody who experiences these things goes on to have all of these medical conditions, but there is just a greater risk of that. Yeah, and that was a really great example. It really helped clarify in my mind that, like you say, the context is really important, that the wider things around the upsetting incident But as well, the body gets the message that it's safe from the the dad in the first situation. And that spoke really powerfully to me, like the body gets the information that it's safe. Like, we're coming back again to that thing of safety being really paramount for not just our psychological well-being, but it sounds like almost our physical well-being as well. Absolutely. And this is the thing, we can't separate the brain from the body. Unfortunately, there's still that disparity in within medicine that the brain is very separate. And, you know, we look at psychiatry and mental illness as something that's really separate from the body, but we're learning much more now how interconnected all of that is. I think we've known a lot of this intuitively and a lot of A lot of really actually allied healthcare professionals have thought this for a while, but now with the way that there's technology has changed and imaging has changed, we can do things that that are called a functional MRI. So really, really detailed MRI scans where we can see much more clearly how the brain and the body are connected. So we can see much more clearly how, for example, if somebody's really low in mood, that can have a massive impact on their gut. So in our digestive system, in our gut, the way that we digest food is through having loads of amazing bacteria. Kind of the general term for that now, we call that a microbiome. Mm -hmm. And the health of that is really crucial. So if your microbiome and your gut is healthy, that has not only implications for how we digest our food, but also that it has impact on our immune system on how our body manages inflammation. And because of that, it also has impacts on how our brain works. So we now know there's evidence to show that if we are low in mood, that can impact on our gut microbiome. And equally, if our gut microbiome is really poor, that in itself can cause a low mood. So there's so much that we're learning about now that actually you cannot separate the brain and the body. They are completely interconnected. And in a lot of ways, that's, you know, I find that really exciting because it opens up so many opportunities for how we can help people in a different way. Yeah. And I was reading some stuff earlier about how long it can take people, particularly women, to get diagnoses for these more chronic pain conditions, autoimmune conditions. And one of the common themes that's coming up is a lot of people being dismissed because the doctors were saying, oh, it's stress, it's anxiety, it's depression, it's all in your head. But what I'm hearing is that actually it can be in your head and in your body at the same time and actually probably is both because of that interconnection. Exactly. So you can say, yeah, it's because of stress, but actually that stress is what's causing the symptoms. So it's rather than saying it's either or, either you have a physical condition or you have a mental health condition, you absolutely can have both. 
And it's that point that actually, you know, if somebody has got a significant anxiety and depression, that is very likely going to cause physical symptoms. Absolutely. And then is the reverse true that if you've got physical symptoms, will that impact on your mood as well? Yeah, I mean, for different reasons. So so for the reason that I, the example I just gave about the gut microbiome, we're now learning just how important gut health is. So what we eat has a massive impact on our overall body's health and in turn then our mental health. But also if people are living with chronic conditions, so chronic pain or long-term conditions, so breathing problems or things like diabetes, just by living with long-term conditions and the issues that that causes, that in itself increases the risk of people developing things like anxiety and depression. So there's very much an overlap and that's where it's important to kind of look at the whole person really. Yeah, it almost feels like in this kind of new way of thinking about medicine that doctors are having to adapt to more than just the here's a prescription, come back in four weeks time and tell us how you're getting on. Like you say, considering things like diet and gut microbiome, do you think is that where medicine's going? Absolutely. So in my mind, that's where medicine is going. So on on one hand, it's really exciting that we've got this new way of looking at how the body's working. Or rather, it's not necessarily that it's not that new. A lot of people have been talking about it for a while, but it's something that is becoming more readily accepted and more and more doctors and healthcare professionals are looking to this approach because they're seeing the more traditional approaches aren't sometimes working as well for people who have ongoing symptoms. However, the problem is that this is not being taught yet at medical schools. So doctors are still being trained in the more traditional way throughout medical school and throughout their training. And we are trained much more in this way of looking at things individually rather than having a more holistic perspective. We are introducing that, we absolutely are introducing that, but it takes time to really make that change. And it really requires an overhaul of the curriculum, to be honest. The important thing to remember in this is that, unfortunately, it comes down to money. So pharmaceutical companies that make the drugs that we're prescribing, they make loads of money. And with money comes power and influence. If you tell somebody to go for a walk and to look at how they're sleeping and make sure they drink more water, that doesn't cost anything, but it doesn't cost anything for the pharmaceutical company, so they're not making money. And so it's looking at how we as individuals can make a change, Mm -hmm. how we really need to look at how doctors' training is adapted and changed. And then we need to look at more essentially a society and political level of the influence of pharmaceutical companies and how that operates. And then kind of going back to the consultation, to try and manage all of that in 10 minutes is really Mm -hmm. a tall ask. So we need to really look at policy for how we're allowing doctors to practice and the framework and restrictions that we have around that. So doctors, particularly so in general practice, you're, you're quite tied to how you're able to work. 
so we really need to look at it kind of in an individual level and a, and a society level and as a system level of how we can change things. However, I think that there are more and more doctors who are wanting to change things. You know, it's looking at that. The underlying point is that doctors are doctors because they want to help people. You know, they're, they're there, they want to help people. So they want to help their patients in the best way possible. And patients want to heal. So patients, people have an innate capacity to heal. It's allowing and empowering patients to take responsibility for themselves to do things and then looking at the systems that we can change and impact so that healthcare professionals are able to do what they feel they need to do to help and serve their patients in the best possible way. Yeah, and like you say, it's not just a little tweak. It is quite a radical overhaul. When you were speaking, I was kind of recalling an appointment that I've had with a GP versus an appointment that my partner's had with a GP. And I think I was really lucky that when I got my diagnosis of lupus, I had an amazing GP, Dr. Kate. She left the profession, unfortunately, but she actually invited me into the clinic to be her last patient of the day so that she took those time restrictions of 10 minutes off herself because she was just keeping herself late at that point and really let me go into detail about all this cluster of symptoms that I was having and the impact on my life. And she did take the time to, you know, talk about my relationship with my ex-husband and my job and my diet and how all these things were working together. My partner having similar kind of pain and fatigue based symptoms tried to take her cluster of symptoms to her GP, but their practice had a rule that you could only talk about one thing in an appointment. And if you can only talk about one thing and they stop you there and don't look at that cluster and don't look at the overall thing, it's no wonder that it's taking a lot longer to start to get some clarity about what's going on for her health-wise. Yeah, that sounds really frustrating. It is really difficult, but it's, it's also worth remembering that with general practice as a GP we need to know a little bit about everything mm -hmm. and medicine and the human body it's kind of almost endless there's so much within that and obviously yeah. we all you know our training encompasses that but we're all going to gravitate towards areas that interest us mm -hmm. so each doctor is going to have a different area which interests them more and therefore where their expertise lies more that's not to say that they don't know an overview of everything, but you're always going to have pockets that you just know a bit more about. Mm -hmm. So patients also need to remember that they can change their doctor if they want to. You know, they can change practice if they want to, but they can also within a practice ask to see a different doctor or ask which is the doctor who specialises or who has an interest in medically unexplained symptoms or who has an interest in dietary issues or who has an interest in skin problems. There will be kind of within a practice, usually the different areas are covered by different doctors within a practice. And it's fine to ask that, to ask to see someone different. Wow, that's really good advice. That had never even occurred to me. I've been aware that you can ask to see a different doctor, but actually asking where their interests are, that's really powerful advice. Do you have any other advice for people who are in that place of medically unexplained symptoms getting frustrated with what's going on? Um, I think, unfortunately, often with, I mean, again, this is a sweeping statement, but often in my experience, people who have experienced medically unexplained symptoms may have 
some issues with confidence, with their own confidence, mm -hmm. and sometimes may find it difficult to speak up and to, to really make themselves heard. But it's encouraging and empowering people to recognise they all have a right to be heard and they have a right to good healthcare. So if they feel that they are not being heard, maybe writing down their symptoms, mm -hmm. taking some individual responsibility for looking at what they can do with regards to really basic things. So, you know, trying to go for a little walk, trying to make sure they're drinking enough water, trying to look at their diet. So they can show and say, I've tried these things and this mm -hmm. isn't helping. Or, you know, I've tried these things and it's helping up to this point, but then I'm not getting any further. Please help me. Also, keeping a bit of a symptom diary might be helpful. So it's just taking a bit of responsibility around what's going on. That can be really helpful. Maybe in some places, so not all places, but some surgeries will allow you to book a double appointment. Not for each appointment and not all the time. But it may be that you can plan ahead with your doctor and say, I know I've got lots of different things I'd like to talk about. Would it be possible to make a double appointment so that we can really go into this in more detail? So it's coming back to that point that doctors want to help. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to do that with a doctor who is not their area of interest, they may be having a bad day themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's coming back to that point that doctors are human and they just may be unsure about what to do. So it's trying to see that, you know, asking somebody if it's their area of interest, maybe writing some of the things down. And if you don't feel heard, then going back and having another appointment and talking about it a bit more and looking at having the symptoms written down or having seeing if you can track them if they're related to different times of the month or different things you've eaten or different things you've done and if that's not working then ask to see someone different or change practice and know that that isn't going to be held against you for doing that you know no one's going to no doctor's going to mind and no one's going to then not see you or, or view you in a negative way if you've asked to do that yeah it comes back to one of the power types that I bring up in my coaching a lot is that queen power type. It sounds like getting in touch with your inner queen, knowing what you want to say, knowing that you're making the changes you can and need this extra support. That sounds like that's a really good mode to take into those kind of appointments so that you have that confidence. Yes, exactly. And yeah, like you say as well, being aware of the pressure that your doctor might be under as well and the day they're having and all those things. It's such a, a multifaceted thing, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's unfortunate that you're kind of, I know it can be very difficult to get an appointment, so you've got almost like this one chance to kind of say everything you need. But actually, you don't just have one chance, you can go back. And it's that idea you can go back and you can go and see someone else. And it's recognising your right to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, thank you. We've covered a lot of ground in a very short space of time. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with to think about? Anything that's coming up for you? I think it's about just recognising, I think, some of the things that have come out with living through this pandemic at the moment. It's looking at the good things that have come out of it. So for a lot of people, how things have slowed down and just taking the positives from that, that actually that slowing down 
that taking time to sit in the garden or be able to go for a walk where you can actually hear the birds outside, that in itself can be really healing. So it's, it's I guess it's that thing about us looking after ourselves, um, whether we're patients or whether we're healthcare professionals. It's really important to just take that moment to look after ourselves and to practice self-care and to see that as something that's really important to do day to day. Yeah, it's almost feeling like taking those little moments where you find them, like yeah. you say, stopping for a cup of tea rather than grabbing one on the go, actually yeah. is something really simple, but it can make a big difference to the rest of your day. Yes, yes, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for all your time today, Susanna. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. If people are wanting to access the information that the First You Project is putting out, can you remind us of the address for that again? Yeah, of course. The website is called www.firstyou.org. Have a look, share it with anyone who you think would find it helpful. And there is a subscribe section and there's an email address. If you've got any ideas, any feedback, then we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Brilliant. And And thank you, Anna, for this opportunity to talk to you. After this interview, the thing that stuck with me was where Susanna said we had the right to be heard. I totally agree with her that confidence can play a big part in that. The confidence to speak up, to set boundaries, to ask for what we need can have life-changing results, but I'm the first one to acknowledge that it's easy to say and harder to put into practice. For me, that's where coaching comes in. When I work with people on accessing and embodying their inner queen, for example, I don't just say, oh, here's a list of things that the inner queen could do. We break it down into what that feels like in your body, how you can practice getting into that mode, when and where to apply it, and how to do that in ways that are both practical and that feel safe. I hold that space for my coaches to discover these new ways of being powerful, but I've also got the practical tools to get them there too. If you're ready to learn how to speak up and make changes, come find me over in Facebook in my group Port in the Storm. Next week, we're talking to Liz Taylor, a former teacher turned charity leader and maths lover. We'll be talking about burnout in the teaching profession, why girls absolutely can do maths, and how we'd overhaul the way society functions if we had the chance. It's one to watch out for. Navigating the Storm is hosted by Anna Knight and produced by Anna Knight and Mel Robinson.